Thank you, guys. It's a joy to be back with you. I was sick last week, had to stay home, and missed being able to worship with my church family. I'm feeling much better now. The rapid weight loss program is over, and I am back um, and feeling much better and excited to be in God's Word with you. Um, I want to say greetings to those. I think there's some folks sitting downstairs. As you can see, we're pretty full. Also, thank you. I know we have a number of people who have been carpooling the last few weeks to try to save us some parking spots, and there's a number of people who park over behind Pizza Hut. Uh, they've given us permission to use their back parking lot on Sunday mornings, so thank you for those of you who are doing that so that we can be hospitable and welcome in those who desire to come worship Christ and hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. I want to invite you today to open up to the book of Titus, chapter 3, Titus chapter 3. Jesus very famously promised in Matthew chapter 16 that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. But notice that Jesus didn't say that the gates of hell wouldn't try. Jesus never said that there wouldn't be obstacles for the church. He never promised that there would be no turmoil, no threats, And we know that while there's often attacks on the church from the outside, that happens, the internal weakening of the church through division in the body can be just as deadly to the health and the well-being and the fruitfulness of the church. But Christ has determined to build his church, and he's promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that means that Christ gives us instruction and provision so that we can guard against not just the external threats to the church, but also the internal threats that threaten the health of his church. Stephen has been preaching for the last two weeks from the book of Philippians on the issue of unity in the church. This unity, as he showed us so clearly, is rooted in the gospel. We're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And this unity is necessary for our mission, and it requires humility. But it's not just the believers in Philippi who are in danger of a divided church. It's the same threat, the same danger to the believers on the island of Crete, where Paul had left Titus, his partner in the ministry, to lead the church. And division within the church is also a threat to us today. So I want you to listen to this key instruction that Paul gives Titus In Titus chapter 3, we'll be focusing on verses 9 through 11, but I'm going to start in verse 8. After rehearsing the truth of the gospel about the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior and the salvation that's been given to us through his mercy, Paul says in verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that you would give grace through your spirit, that we might not only understand the meaning of this text, but also see the implications for us today at Redemption Hill. Lord, we pray that you would preserve the unity and the health of this church so that we might be effective in the mission that you've given us, so that we might glorify you and display to the world the truth of the gospel that you want us to preach. We pray for clear heads and soft hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Titus, I think, is all about what it means to be a healthy church. Healthy leadership, healthy doctrine, uh, healthy practice within the church. And the main point of this text is that healthy churches guard against division for the sake of Christ's mission. That means if we're going to be a healthy church, we need to guard against division for the sake of the mission that Jesus Christ has given us. And I want to make clear, this is about unity, yes, but it is specifically unity in the church. This isn't just about generic unity. This isn't about political unity. This isn't about national unity. It's not about unity in our neighborhoods or in our workplace or even in our families. 
No, this is about unity specifically in the church, in the congregation. Believers who've been joined together through faith in Christ, who are following godly leadership in a local church body. This is about togetherness in our convictions, togetherness in our efforts, togetherness in our relationships, the ones here in this room. And there's a reason why the unity of the church is so important. It matters for the spiritual health of the church. Division is a threat to the body, and it affects the success of our mission. If we're going to grow in Christ together, if we are going to bear good fruit and be who Jesus desires us to be, if we're going to make disciples and carry the gospel to the lost, then the church must not be fractured. We must guard against division. So how do we do that? How do we guard against a fracturing in the fellowship of the local church? Well, Paul gives us two simple points this morning, two key commitments of healthy church. And the first is in verse 9. Healthy churches, number one, refrain from divisive behavior. Healthy churches refrain from divisive behavior. He says in verse 9, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. He says we're to avoid certain behaviors, to keep back, to keep aloof, to refuse to engage, to not participate in certain kinds of behaviors and controversies that threaten the unity of the church. There are some things that are worth arguing for. There are some things, even within this very chapter, that we must insist upon. Look in verse 8. The saying, referring to the gospel, is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Back in chapter 2, verse 15, with reference to the gospel and the good works that are the implications of the gospel, Paul says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So there's some things that are worth arguing for, especially the central message of the gospel. And Paul wants Titus and the believers on the island of Crete to keep the grace and the mercy of the cross at the center. There is to be a stubborn dogmatism about the centrality, the priority of the gospel and its implications. Paul, of all people, was not afraid to stick his nose into controversy for the sake of the gospel. We know that in almost every book Paul writes, he denounces false teachers. We see in the book of Acts that he disputes with Jewish religious leaders. In Galatians, we find that Paul confronts Peter himself, a fellow apostle, because of his hypocrisy, because his conduct was out of step with the gospel. Paul even called out Barnabas for his complicity in Peter's hypocrisy. Paul told the Galatians that if he himself or his partners or even an angel from heaven should ever preach a different gospel than what they had already received, he was to be accursed. So Paul is no stranger to conflict, no stranger to controversy. He doesn't back down from a fight that is worth having. But at the same time, there are other things that are not worth fighting for. Paul gives a sampling of this divisive behavior, and he tells Titus, avoid these activities. Not because we just need to be nice people for the sake of being nice. Not because those that are disagreeable are annoying, though they may be. But that's not the reason. And now look at what he says. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. Why? Here's why. For they are unprofitable and worthless. We are to avoid pointless conflict because there's no benefit to it. It's a waste of time. It does not edify anyone. It does not build up the church. It does not bear good fruit. What a contrast to verse 8, where the emphasis of the gospel, this message he's supposed to insist upon, results in good works. He says these things are excellent and profitable for people. We have a stark contrast between insisting on the gospel in verse 8, which is profitable and excellent, and then avoiding foolish controversies, which are unprofitable, verse 9, and worthless. So he gives us a number of examples of things we're supposed to avoid. First, he says avoid foolish controversies. Foolish controversies. Some controversy, some kinds of arguments, 
Some battles are simply foolish because the issues themselves are trivial and not worth fighting over. A few centuries back, a famous pastor named Charles Spurgeon wrote this, commenting on this passage. He says, There are hundreds of questions which are thought by some people to be very important, but which have no practical bearing whatever, either upon the glory of God or upon the holiness of man. We are not to go into these matters. Let those who have time to waste take up these questions. As for us, we have not time enough for things that are unprofitable and vain. He's right. In every age, there's things that just aren't worth our time, foolish controversies that don't bring any benefit to the body. We need to be careful to avoid those things. Secondly, he says, we're to avoid getting sucked into debates about what he calls genealogies. Now, some of you might read that and go, okay, does this give me permission to skip over all the family trees when I'm doing my Bible reading? Is that what... Is that what Paul is saying, that we're to avoid genealogies because I can flip back here, you know, some of these less crinkled pages have big lists of names, you know, in the Old Testament. Well, no, Paul's not saying that we shouldn't study the Bible. There's reasons why those genealogies are there and there's benefit for us. And we talk about those when we preach through those books and we should read them. What Paul has in view here is that there are some in his day who would study those genealogies But they would look for some sort of secret hidden meaning in the family trees. This was sort of a superstitious, kind of gimmicky kind of interpretation where they would sort of add up the letters and create numbers and then try to patch it all together to say it means something other than so-and-so begat so-and-so. It's a wrongful obsession with looking for codes and secrets in the text. Paul says that's a waste of time. That's an illegitimate approach to Scripture. That is more superstitious than it is godly. And this sort of approach to Scripture was a feature for many of the false teachers in Paul's day. He had to write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths And endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, by swerving from love and a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, swerving from this stewardship that God has given us, Paul says, These people, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. It says that's a mark of false teachers. That's not the sort of thing that we as faithful Christians should get involved with. People do this today. They use weird numeric codes to try to predict prophetic events. And they just mangle scripture in the process. That's an approach to the Bible that sensationalizes the scripture. And what we see as the fruit of that approach is that that sort of study from scripture, that sort of of wrangling with genealogies and, and weird numeric codes and wrong approaches to interpretation, that approach to the Bible never leads to conviction of sin. It just doesn't. No one is ever sanctified by that kind of approach to Scripture. That sort of arguing over these speculations and conspiracy theories from the Bible that never produces a deeper love for Christ. It's worthless. It is unprofitable. It never produces worship for God. It just appeals to people's fleshly hunger for secret knowledge and conspiracy theories. And Paul says we should avoid that kind of speculative theology. Avoid gimmicky and novel approaches to Scripture that lead people away from Christ. We're to avoid foolish controversies, avoid genealogies. Thirdly, he says, we're to avoid dissensions. Dissensions. When Paul talks about dissensions, this is not so much an issue-driven conflict where people are fighting over the principle of something. This is rather a personality-driven conflict. And aren't so many divisions in the church today really just battles of personality? 
It's drama, who's on whose side, who said what. This word dissension frequently appears in the New Testament as something that is fleshly, something that is carnal, something that is not to be named among believers. Paul lists this behavior as one of the works of the flesh when he wrote to the Galatians. He says, now the works of the flesh, Galatians 5.19, are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. He says in verse 21, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things, meaning those who continue to participate in those sins without repenting, he says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul rebuked those believers in Corinth because of their divisive party spirit. They had dissensions in the church based upon who their favorite church leader was. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's bringing out the big guns here. This is authoritative. I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. That's the same word there for dissensions. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Paul's not condemning denominations here. He's not condemning different theological convictions. He's saying people within the same congregation are all split up into different groups based on who their favorite leader was. They were taking sides, seeing each other as competition, seeing each other as the enemy because of who their favorite influence was in that church. Too often, conflict in the church starts over something that's relatively small, a small disagreement, a small issue, but those conflicts become a big deal because they get personal. Well, I'm on this team, you're on that team, and it becomes about the people involved, and we take sides. Names get attached. But Paul says these divisions, these dissensions do not honor Christ. We are, avoid, we are to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and dissensions. And then fourth and final, he says they are to avoid quarrels about the law. Avoid quarrels about the law. It becomes clear here who Paul has in mind. He has the Jewish false teachers in mind when he's writing this, since they would have been the ones trying to force an application of the Old Testament law on Gentile believers. So this is becoming now a theological argument. This is a theological argument. It's a false teaching that needs to be quickly refuted and then no longer pay any attention to it. Paul deals with it. Um, he's willing to deal with it in many of his books, and he even called these people out in chapter 1. These people would have had the appearance of being very godly. I mean, they're talking about God's law, and they're talking about certain things found in the Old Testament, but their application was wrong. And they were starting to muddy the water of the gospel itself by saying that these believers had to keep certain Old Testament ceremonial laws. Paul said in Titus 1.16 about these false teachers, that they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul says, don't get sucked in to this conflict, these quarrels about the law with these people. No. This party of these Jewish false teachers, they had made something else bigger than the gospel. And it showed their so-called knowledge of the law was worthless. It didn't produce good fruit. Paul says you should avoid that. Avoid that. So there's certain things in the church, certain behaviors, even certain controversies that are not worth our time, not worth arguing about, and we are to avoid those things. Now I want to make two points of clarification here. Two points of clarification. First, here's what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that we have to agree on everything in the church. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that we can't even talk about our disagreements. No, there is room for that. Unity in the church does not mean uniformity, where we all think and feel the same things about every issue under the sun. No, our unity is in something concrete and central. 
It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our understanding of the priority of the gospel and a grace-driven humility that comes from that and a godly self-control before God, that's what Paul's getting after here. We should be able to talk through a number of issues and disagreements in the church. There's room for that. So this doesn't mean that we have to agree on everything or that we can't talk about anything if people may have different views. What it does mean is we need to avoid foolish controversies. We need to avoid this becoming a quarrel because those things are unprofitable and worthless. And a second point of clarification, Paul is emphatically not advocating that we compromise the truth for the sake of getting along. There are some people out there that would say, drawing any lines of distinction and arguing for any doctrine is divisive. And that the goal should be unity. The goal should be this one world church where we all get along and everybody agrees because we've just lowered the bar so far that it doesn't really matter anymore. That's definitely not what Paul's getting at here. He's not advocating that we compromise truth for the sake of unity. Paul had strong words for the false teachers in chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. He says, Titus is to rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who who turn away from the truth. So he's not saying lower the bar. He's not saying that we should compromise the truth for the sake of unity. You see, if we're unwilling to draw any lines, if we're unwilling to stand for the truth, we may achieve a sort of unity in the church, yes, but it's a counterfeit unity. J.C. Ryle, the Puritan pastor, warned so many years ago that unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. Think about that. People in hell today are united in their rejection of Jesus Christ. So unity for the sake of unity is not at all what we're after. We are after unity in the gospel for the sake of the gospel. So we pursue unity in the church, not at the expense of right doctrine, but on the basis of right doctrine. This passage is simply urging us to stay away from foolish arguments that are not worth having, that ruin the precious unity we do have in the gospel. So while truth must never be compromised, there are certain behaviors, there are certain conflicts that we have a biblical responsibility to avoid. There are many people who argue about many things in the church, and they're quick to reference the book of Jude, which says we must contend for the faith. We would say, yes, we must contend for the faith, but often our contentions are not for things that are central or crucial to the faith, and our contentions have more to do with our flesh and our pride than they do the truth of Scripture. So there are certain behaviors, certain conflicts, we have a biblical responsibility to avoid. And yes, there's some people today who may be wrongly unwilling to engage in necessary conflict. They won't contend at all. We need to be careful about the danger on the other side, the danger of being too eager for the fight. You know, it's really easy for us. It's easy for us for our pride to be inflamed when someone doesn't agree with us. It's really easy for us to get sidetracked, to become distracted by other issues that aren't worth our time, effort, and energy. It's really easy for us to get sucked into debates about masks and about vaccines or about theological nuances, about our favorite doctrine, about apologetic debates. It's easy for us to get sucked into speculations about conspiracy theories or how certain prophecies may come to pass. It's easy for us to get embroiled in in conflict over our personal issues and our personal agendas. But listen, Scripture commands us to guard against division, to avoid certain types of behavior for the sake of Christ's mission, for the sake of the health of the body. And this is a command we must obey. You say, what's the best way to do that? How do we avoid falling into these behaviors? Well, I think very simply, the best way to avoid unnecessary divisive behavior is to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the things that do matter. Then you won't have time or effort or energy left over for the other stuff. 
If we devote ourselves to the gospel, to the things that are clear in God's word, and there's plenty of them, if we give our energies to that, we will find that other conflict is not worth engaging in, but this battle, contending for the truth, that is worth giving ourselves to. That's a battle we do belong in. That's a message and a mission that is profitable and worthwhile, and it's necessary. If we give ourselves to that and have a clear sense of priority, I think it will help protect us from getting sucked into all these other things that are not worth having division over in the church. So healthy churches, number one, refrain from divisive behavior. But Paul gives us a second commitment for a healthy church. Number two, healthy churches, secondly, deal with divisive people. Healthy churches will deal with divisive people. Verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. We have to understand what it means to stir up division. We better figure out what that is. Otherwise, we are in danger of tolerating things that we should deal with. Or on the flip side, we are in danger of pouncing on things that maybe we should be more patient with and tolerate. So we need to understand, what does it mean to stir up division? Well, it doesn't mean being a K-State fan and attending a church in Lawrence. Otherwise, some of our worship team needs to be under church discipline. Just put it that way. That's not what we're talking about by stirring up division. Let me get a little bit more serious. It also doesn't mean disagreeing with a pastor on a budget proposal. That's not stirring up division. It doesn't mean stirring up division to simply have your own opinion and be firmly convinced about the validity or necessity of masks or vaccines or various you know, responses to a virus. We can all be firmly convinced in our own mind on those things. Stirring up division doesn't mean bringing necessary, needed rebuke, confronting sin in the church. This isn't some sort of shield that you can use to deflect the needed rebuke and confrontation, admonition of a faithful brother in Christ. Scripture calls us to confront sin in the church. It would be a wrongful abuse of power for Christians to use this verse to somehow control and manipulate other people and silence any disagreement in the church. And there's too many authoritarian leaders, authoritarian pastors, who have used this verse like a baseball bat to beat people into submission. But all we have to do is look in the New Testament to see that the New Testament shows us godly believers who are willing to confront sin in the church. So that can't be stirring up division. In the New Testament, we find that they dealt with issues. They had church councils to hash through and figure out different controversies and disagreements that were in the church. So that's not stirring up division. We find that they had differences of opinion. Even Paul and Barnabas strongly disagreed on a practical matter of ministry, and they decided to go their separate ways because of it. That's not stirring up division. So what does it mean to stir up division? Well, in this immediate context, it's the things found in verse 9. It would stir up division in the church to promote foolish controversies. That would be stirring up division. Or to engage in speculations. It doesn't have to be genealogies. It can be the the same kind of um, flavor. It, It can be a different issue. But speculative theology, getting fixated on these things that we shouldn't be focusing on, that's stirring up division. To engage in quarrels about the law, arguing over the application of certain things and causing division, that's stirring up division. When you insist on things that are not the gospel, but you insist on things that are unprofitable and worthless, that's stirring up division. As we zoom out on the rest of the New Testament, we find that stirring up division would include things like spreading and promoting doctrinal teaching that conflicts with the truth of Scripture. False teaching is a kind of divisiveness because it undermines the truth that unites us. It would stir up division to attack and undermine another person's character, to spread slander or or gossip in an attempt to gain power or influence in the church. That's stirring up division. 
It would stir up division to spread your criticisms of another person in the church over a matter of conscience that's not clear in Scripture. In the New Testament day and age, they had a bunch of disagreements about what foods you could and couldn't eat and about how the Sabbath was to be observed and a number of other things. And Paul uh, often is teaching, whether it's the Romans or the Corinthians, that these are matters of conscience. You should not judge your brother. That's stirring up division when we drive a wedge over the application of things that are matters of personal conscience in the church. So there's a number of things that do qualify as stirring up division. And the sad reality is that sometimes there will be those in the church who become sources of division. What are we supposed to do when that happens? How are we supposed to handle that? Well, the text is clear. There's disciplinary action. As for a person who stirs up division, verse 10, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. This is disciplinary. This is relational withdrawal. This is a refusal to engage. This is excluding them from the fellowship of the church. Now, some people may object at this point and say, doesn't this seem a little harsh? How is this loving to treat someone this way? Well, I would just ask you to look at the text and notice that there's a lot of grace given before it reaches this stage. There are multiple warnings after warning him once and then twice. There's multiple chances given. There's grace that is extended. There's repentance that's being sought. The goal of these two warnings is that the person will stop doing what they're doing. And if that's the case, then there's no disciplinary action needed. We've now dealt with the issue. These these warnings are given in hopes that people will listen and stop stirring up division. It's only after their refusal to repent is made clear that we're to pull away and exclude them from the fellowship of the church for the sake of the church's health, for the sake of our mission. If you feel like this is harsh or unloving, just let me make this clear. Ultimately, what matters most is not your attitude or my attitude towards divisive behavior. What matters most is God's attitude towards divisive behavior. Can we agree on that? Listen to what God says in Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6.16 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. One who sows discord among brothers is an abomination to God, meaning that God hates that. And I want to make it clear, we really like the statement that God hates the sin and loves the sinner, but it doesn't say God hates the act of stirring up division among brothers. It says the one... The person who sows discord among brothers is an abomination to God. God hates that. And we need to hate it too. We need a holy hatred that is driven by love for Christ, driven by love for his glory, driven by a love for the health of the church that Jesus died for, driven by a love for the reputation of the gospel. We need to care enough to respond correctly when a divisive person asserts themselves in the church. If they refuse to listen to warnings, then we are to have nothing more to do with them. We don't engage in their disputes. We don't give them a hearing. We don't allow them influence. We don't feed their lust for controversy. We take away their platform by simply ignoring them. Is this being judgmental? No. Paul says we deal with such a person in this way, look at verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. We are not judging a person in this case. The person has proven by their behavior that they are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. They have judged themselves and shown themselves, shown their true colors, shown themselves to be someone who needs to be dealt with. 
someone who needs to be disciplined. Their refusal to listen to warning is a blatant demonstration of unrepentant pride. Their own actions show a warped sense of priority and a sinful attitude of rebellion. To rebel against godly authority, to rebel against the clear truth of Scripture, and persist in doing this? Paul says they are warped, sinful, and self-condemned. The fruit of the Spirit is not evident in someone like this. Galatians 5 says the fruit of the Spirit includes love and peace and gentleness and self-control. But the person who continues to stir up division is not motivated by love, but by selfish ambition. They're not demonstrating the good fruit of peacefulness. They're causing conflict. They're not being gentle. They're throwing punches in the church. They're not demonstrating self-control. They can't help but engage in these arguments. It's like a guard dog that won't listen when it's called off by its master. It's just going nuts. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. Ironically, such divisive people often will claim to be highly discerning. They will claim to be highly discerning. They will claim to have wisdom and insight that nobody else has and that we need to listen to them and their concerns and agree with them and their convictions. But listen to how James diagnoses their true nature. James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Listen, the divisive person may have a wisdom that no one else has. Sure, that's true, all right, but it's not a wisdom from God. It is demonic, James says. It is destructive. Someone who displays blatant hostility towards the church like that. Someone who scoffs at biblical authority. Someone who shows complete disregard for the harm that it causes the flock. They must be dealt with. They're no longer a sheep that's in need of care. That's just out of line. They're now acting like a wolf that's a threat to the flock. So at this point, after every other recourse has been taken, with heavy hearts, we have nothing more to do with this individual until repentance has been demonstrated. If you've been around for, at our church for a while, you'll know that this passage is not just theoretical for us. Sadly, a few years ago, we had to put this passage into practice. There was a woman in our church who was harassing other people, who became belligerent when she was confronted over her sin. She started threatening others in the church and slandering and spreading lies. And we pleaded with her to stop. We pleaded with her to repent and to be restored to fellowship in our church, but she would not. And so she brought this judgment on herself. After warning her once and then twice, we had no choice except to, um, to cancel her membership at Redemption Hill and withdraw relationally from her. And to those, especially those who may not see the whole picture, something like that may not always make sense. That may seem harsh or judgmental. But it's in light of passages like this that we recognize that's what must happen when there's division that's being stirred up in the church. And there's actually a pattern here that I want us to see. You might say, wow, this isn't very edifying. I don't feel very encouraged by all this today. Well, I want you to notice a pattern here. There's a pattern that's reflected in the character of the gospel itself. And so it makes sense that those who believe the gospel, preach the gospel, that even the way we do church life together is shaped by the gospel message. Think about this. The gospel, first of all, warns us, doesn't it? The gospel comes to us telling us that we are sinful. It exposes our rebellion against God. The, the gospel condemns our rebellion and pride. The gospel tells us that we need to be forgiven and the gospel calls us to turn and repent. The gospel is an offer of grace. 
It's a chance to turn from our sinful ways and trust in Jesus Christ. But for those who refuse to bow the knee to Christ, those who refuse to turn, refuse to turn from sin, those who refuse the gracious warnings that God gives, what's the consequences? There's judgment, isn't there? It's judgment. The kind of person who refuses to repent of sin, refuses to submit to Christ, that person brings judgment on themselves. They're condemned, warped, sinful. You may not be a divisive person in the church this morning, but perhaps there would be some among us today who are not believers, and you have been ignoring the warnings that God has given you, ignoring the conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit is bringing, ignoring the offer of grace and the invitation to turn and repent. And while you're not a divisive church member in danger of being kicked out of the assembly of the church, you may be a rebellious sinner who's in danger of eternal judgment. Perhaps you've ignored the warnings that God is giving you through his word. You know what the Bible says, you've read it, you just don't like it and you're not ready yet to bow your knee. Perhaps you've ignored the warnings of a concerned parent who has tried again and again to share with you the importance of turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've ignored the warnings of a believing friend who's shared the gospel with you and called you to turn from your sinful ways and to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. If you're hearing my voice today, God's giving you another warning. It's a warning that if you do not turn from sin, if you do not repent, there will be consequences. That's how this universe works. That's how it works when creatures rebel against their creator. Listen, don't continue down the path to destruction today. Listen to the warnings. Sin leads to death. Your unbelief will lead to eternal judgment and regret. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 says, working together with him, with Christ. It's talking about how, how God is using Paul as an ambassador to preach the gospel. He says, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. The message of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel is grace. You're hearing grace this morning that, that God will forgive you of your sin, that Jesus shed his blood to rescue you from eternity in hell. He says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, Paul quotes the Old Testament, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Paul concludes, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul says, don't blow this off. Don't ignore this message. Don't turn away again from the message of the gospel. Today is the day. And I'm warning you, I'm warning you that if you refuse Christ, if you refuse his gospel, it only leads to death. It only leads to judgment. You see, the way that we deal with divisive people in the church reflects the larger pattern of how God deals with us. He warns us. He extends grace to us. And if we respond in repentance, we are reconciled, forgiven, and restored. But if we refuse his warning, it leads to judgment. For those who place their faith in Christ, the blessings of the gospel are poured out. But for those who persist in unbelief, it leads only to death. This is how God operates. This is how the gospel works. And so it's no surprise we find the same pattern in the church, in how we are to deal with those who stir up division in the body. We warn them, we appeal to them to repent, and if they refuse, then there's necessary consequences. So let me bring this home this morning. What does it matter for you personally that you are the kind of person who's able to walk away from foolish controversies that are always popping up in the church? Why does it matter that you be able personally to refrain from engaging in divisive behavior? Why does it matter that you as a member of this church would have the courage to confront and to deal with divisive people and to follow through in obeying this commandment? I want you to consider two things this morning. Number one, consider the impact on the mission. 
Consider the impact this has on our mission as a church. A divided church is crippled and ineffective in its mission to spread the gospel. If we spend all our time fighting with each other here, embroiled in divisions here, conflicts here, arguing over things that don't matter here, we're burning all our gas, spinning our tires, and we're not taking the gospel to the nations. A divided church is a distracted church. A divided church will not be producing the good works that Christ has for us. Jesus died for us. Chapter 2, verse verse 14. To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If we're zealous for something else, we're not doing the good works God has for us. Not only that, division hurts our credibility. It undermines our witness. You know what God desires for this church? He desires that people would look at this congregation and that they would be astonished by the unity that they see here. Astonished that people who don't agree about masks and vaccines can worship the same Jesus and be committed to the same mission. Astonished that people who don't vote the same way would gather together to worship Christ and would love each other like brothers and sisters. The world can't do that. They can't manufacture that kind of unity. Without uniformity, they have to shout you down and get you to agree with them and be united in thinking all the same things. But the church is to be different. I hope the world would look at our church and be filled with wonder to say, what is it that binds all those weird Christians together? It's in this way that we will, like Paul said in chapter 2, verse 10, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's seek to live in such a way that commends the gospel to the lost. But I don't want you just to consider the impact on the mission. Secondly, consider the impact this has on you. Division in the church harms people. Because get this, the church is people. Okay, the concern here is not just for Redemption Hill as an institution. No. The church is people. The church is a body, a family, a community. And it's made up of real lives. So this is where it gets personal for you. Don't permit the water that you drink from here at Redemption Hill to become polluted with what is unprofitable and worthless. A unified church is a strong church where the grace of God will be experienced in full force because the gospel is central. The gospel is primary and without competition. In this kind of environment, spiritual life, your spiritual life, will flourish, will thrive. In this environment, you are going to grow. So if you want the best for yourself, I'm appealing a little bit here to your self-interest, then you have a dog in the fight to make sure that this church doesn't become the kind of church where we tolerate and engage in divisive behavior. May we embrace the wisdom of Titus 3 verse 8 to insist on the good news of the gospel, to fight for the things that are worth fighting for. May we be champions of the message of grace, spending ourselves to both preserve and proclaim the precious truth that Jesus died to save sinners like us. Let's let that message, that truth, that gospel, that conflict be the basis of our unity. Let that be the flag that we wave in the hill that we die on. Let that be our identity. This, friends, is excellent and profitable and will result in the good fruit of good works that glorify God and strengthen his church and commend his gospel to the world. God, we pray and ask that you would help us to be on guard against the tendencies in our own flesh and our own heart. It's so easy for us to get sucked in to the wrong arguments and the wrong conflicts. It's easy for us to get sidetracked and distracted It's easy for us to see people who disagree with us as enemies. Lord, I pray that you would give us a humble heart this morning to recognize the sinful tendencies that reside in our flesh. I pray that we would be on guard against that and that where there's perhaps evidence of of sinful thinking, sinful attitudes, or even sinful words or actions, I pray that we would confess it and acknowledge that this does not honor you. Lord, we're thankful that there is grace and forgiveness 
for divisive people. There's a warning given, but with that warning comes always the hope and the promise of restoration. Lord, we thank you for how you're growing us in this area. Over the last few years with all the issues surrounding racial conflict and COVID and politics and and even the process of buying a building and, and remodeling it, there's so many opportunities for division there. Lord, I want to praise you and thank you for how you've preserved the unity of this church through all of that. It's remarkable to me. It's highly unusual that a church would have so little conflict and controversy in the last few years. Lord, we thank you for that. That's a gift of your grace. That's evident that you are at work in the hearts of the people here. And Lord, we know that if we are not on guard, that that may not necessarily last forever. We need to be vigilant to not permit or tolerate divisive behavior, to not engage in it ourselves. Lord, help us to be wise, to be humble, and to be fiercely loyal to the truths that do matter, to engage in the conflict that is necessary, and just to be wise in discerning what that looks like. Lord, I thank you for how rare it's been that we've had to deal with that. But I do pray that you'd help us to be faithful if the situation arises again, that we would be willing to follow through and apply verses like Titus 3, 9 through 11, among all the other passages on church discipline. Lord, we know it's important. It matters. It matters to protect the health of your bride. And who are we to lower the bar and think that we know a better way to protect the health of the church? Lord, we acknowledge that this church belongs to you. We thank you for how you're growing it. We pray that you would sanctify us, humble us, unite us each week in the truth of the gospel. And Lord, for those who may be resisting the warnings, who may be hesitant to turn from sin and trust in Christ, I pray that they would recognize the very simple principle in this text that ongoing unbelief and ongoing rebellion only leads to consequences and it leads to judgment, it leads to death. Lord, I pray that you would soften the rebel's heart today, that you would save sinners and draw men and women to yourself and unite them with us, with your son, in the truth of the gospel. As they believe that his death on the cross atoned for sin and that the resurrected Jesus is now Lord and King, the only master worth following. So Lord, sanctify us with this truth, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.